Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about a 19th century whaling ship called the Essex. Uh, which had a series of adventures and and misadventures as well that culminated in it being attacked and sunk by a mighty whale. Now, this might sound familiar to you, of course, from the world of literature and fiction, but this is actually a true-life story. This is a true-life real story that is obviously said to have inspired the classic um, uh, Moby Dick, the, the book by Herman Melville. Um, while this whale wasn't white and while the captain of the Essex wasn't a, you know, one-legged monomaniacal fanatic called Captain Ahab. Still, the tale of the Essex is just as interesting as the tale of the Pequod, and I'm sorry to say, just as tragic as well. I want to thank alert listener Bart von... Oh, oh dear. Bart von Gule? I'm sorry, Bart. I, I want to thank Bart, the alert listener, loyal listener, been around a long time, suggested quite a few different topics over the years, and I still have never learned how to pronounce his last name. But Thanks, Barty, old mate. Good on you. Thanks for uh, suggesting uh, this topic. But uh, before we begin, quite seriously, uh, before we get stuck into this episode properly, I want to warn you that this week things do get um, things to get very grisly indeed. Again, quite seriously. Obviously, we all love a bit of you know blood and guts and horrible murder, of course, and there's plenty of that this week. But uh, you know, as much as they say that comedy equals plage- uh, tragedy plus time, this week we've got some some pretty full on stuff. Uh, going on. The tale of the final voyage of the Essex involves more than just blood and guts and horrible murder, but also starvation, exposure, and I'm, I'm sorry to say um, human ca- cannibalism as well. So this is not a story that's appropriate for young ears uh, or for those of a delicate disposition. I just want to make that very clear from the outset rather than you know, blindside everyone with the parts of the story that are really full on potentially disturbing. So just, just, just so everyone's across that before we get to it. But with the warning out of the way, here's what happened. In 1819, a ship called the Essex. It's set off from Nantucket, which is an island off the coast of Massachusetts in the US, uh, center point of the US whaling industry, of course. And uh, it cruised around Cape Horn into the Pacific, had a few thrills and spills there, and then was attacked by a huge sperm whale, which ended up causing the ship to sink. Now, the crew were left on their small whale boats in the middle of the Pacific with you know precious little in the way of supplies. And what happened next is a tragic tale of desperate survival on the open ocean as they attempted to make their way back to the safety of dry land. But Before we get to that part of the story, we've got to get across how it came about. So here we go with the tragic tale of the Essex, the real-life inspiration for the famous tale of Moby Dick. Off we go. We're going all the way back here, all the way back to 1799, when the Essex was first constructed, a whale ship or a whaler, uh, around 26, 27 metres long, uh, kind of small for a whale ship, to be honest. Uh, could carry four or five smaller whale boats, six or seven metres, between six and nine metres long, some of them. Um, uh, They were the ones that were actually used to hunt whales. So, you know, the, the, the ship had would pull up, pull up, I don't know what a ship does, stop, I guess, in the ocean. Um, the whale boats would be lowered into the sea and then the whalers would go off in the whale boats to, uh, to hunt their prey. Now, whaling, of course, was a huge industry at this point in history. Whales were hunted with, uh, for their meat and for their blubber. The whale blubber can be refined into whale oil, which was consumed extensively during the Industrial Revolution, of course. Um, and, and due to extensive commercial whaling um, throughout this period, many species of whale were driven near extinction, in fact, by commercial whaling. There was an international ban that was placed on whaling in 1986, although a few nations ignore the ban even today and they continue commercial whaling 
you know, yeah, right through the 21st century. Um, and then other people enjoy uh, exemptions to the ban for uh, Aboriginal subsistence whaling in some parts of the world as well. Anyway, at the turn of the 20, at the turn of the 19th century, I should say, nothing like that, of course, no international moratorium on whaling. Um, it was a massive industry, and the Essex was one of countless ships cutting about and hunting down whales. Now, the Essex did have a reputation, however, as being a lucky ship. And you know that sailors, very very superstitious folk. Uh, so the, the Essex, it had been taken on uh, very many uh, prosperous voyages across the span of two decades. So it did have a reputation as being a lucky ship. And in 1819, it set off on yet another voyage. Hopes are very high for it. This voyage obviously would end up being its very last but they didn't know that at the time. Young George Pollard Jr. was its captain, and the even younger Owen Chase was its first mate. Now, Pollard and Chase are very, very young to be in charge of a ship like this, to be commanding officers. Uh, Pollard was just 20, uh, 29, and Chase was 23. So very, very young blokes to be in charge of a ship, as I say, but they'd worked together previously, and they'd both excelled themselves on previous voyages, and they were the ones in charge of the crew, where, which totaled 21 men, all up, including those two. The Essex wasn't a large whaler, as I say, and it didn't need a large crew. And the plan was to take two and a half years to sail from Nantucket to the Pacific and hunt whales off the, uh, the west coast of, of, uh, of South America. So two and a half year round trip to go and do a bunch of whaling and then come back eventually with, the, with their spoils. So um, the reason they travelled so far, by the way, was that the waters around Massachusetts at this point have already begun to be depleted of whales. The, the whale stocks have gone down significantly, again, due to, due to just how big the industry was. And so ships had to go much further afield, all the way around. Stocks were plentiful in the East Pacific, uh, so that's where, they were, that's where they were headed. So on the 12th of August in 1819, the Essex set off, uh, and everything went very well indeed. It was all very, very smooth sailing for about two days. Despite the Essex's reputation as being a lucky ship, it only took two days for things to start to go wrong when a massive squall blew up uh, and did a huge amount of damage to the ship and some of the whale boats that it was carrying as well. So very bad start to the journey. All the same, Captain Pollard, he says, nah, boys, look, she'll be right. You know, on we trot. Don't even worry about it. We're not going to turn around and go back for repairs, which they could have done very easily, you know, would have added a couple of days to their journey, but would have put the ship, uh, you know, back to full capacity, but they didn't do this and they continued on south. Now, the Essex made its way around Cape Horn, the southern tip of, of, of South America, but very slow going indeed. And they didn't get to the Pacific until January 1820. And this was after a particularly long transit, of, a five-week transit of, uh, of, of Cape Horn there. So the crew at this point are beginning to talk of bad omens, you know, especially considering the squall at the beginning of the journey, the fact that things were going so slowly weren't going well at all. Uh, there's a bit of chatter about the fact that, that may, you know, so maybe some, some ill fortune had cursed, the, uh, had cursed this voyage. Again, sailors, very suspicious folk. But nonetheless, they make it, uh, they make it through to the Pacific safe and sound-ish, and they begin to sail north up the coast of South America to the waters just off of modern-day Ecuador. And in, as, as 1820 continued, the Essex, you know, cutting about hunting whales with mixed results. Uh, they went ashore at one point at the town of Atacamas, and one of the crew deserted the ship, which was a bit of an issue for the rest of the crew, and I'll tell you why. It took six men to crew a whale boat. So 18 of them would crew three whale boats, go off and hunt whales, and three would remain behind on the Essex to look after the ship while the, the whale boats were off hunting and, and, and you know, keep everything uh, shipshape, as it were, until the whale boats came back. Now... With the desertion of one of the crew, they're down to 20 people, which means that once the 18 of them go off on the whaleboats, only two could remain behind on the ship, which is not enough to look after the ship properly. So, you know, a little bit of tension, a little bit of stress for the, for the blokes aboard the ship who uh, are now, you know, undermanned. Nonetheless, they press on with their hunting 
you know, don't have too much luck in the waters closer to the coast. And so they decide to head uh, further out uh, into the open ocean after meeting up with another whaling ship that gave them a bit of a tip, right? They meet up with another whaling ship and talk to the crew uh, who actually give them a bit of advice. They give them the location of, uh, of a hunting ground that apparently is just bountiful and rich and, and filled with whales. The only problem was it was four and a half thousand kilometers away and a very, very long way from the shore, a lot further away from dry land than uh, than most whalers would uh, would generally head under normal circumstances. However, once again, this uh, the crew of this other whaler they impress upon them just the you know the, the richness of this hunting ground, and uh, despite you know there being a fair bit of contention aboard the Essex over this decision to set sail there, I mean many of the sailors they had been uh, you know they, they'd heard tell that the islands in that area were inhabited by cannibals. Um, they were very reluctant to uh, to head in that direction and, 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 and hunt down these supposedly uh, rich hunting grounds because they were scared. They were worried that they would fall victim to uh, you know to, to the, the people that lived on the on the various Pacific islands dotted around that part of the world. And on top of that, it was just also a huge dis- distance to travel, like a very, very long way from, you know, from, from land, from, from South America. There. Even though there were these islands dotted around, it was a huge, huge way away from, um, you know, from what these men considered civilization. So there was a little bit of disagreement amongst the crew, and, that, and that, not all of them were happy with the decision to, to go after these, these hunting grounds. But ultimately, that was the decision that was made, and, uh, and they, they, they decide to head to this whaling ground that had been suggested to them, and they made the necessary preparations for you know, what was going to be a very long journey here. And to do so, they sailed to the Galapagos Islands. You've probably heard of these very, very famous, uh, very famous set of islands off the coast of Ecuador. They needed not only to uh, perform some repairs on their ship before this voyage, but they also needed to replenish their supplies. So on the 8th of October in 1820, the ship anchored at Espanola Island, or um, Hood Island as it was known back then. Uh, and they spent a week there preparing for the long voyage ahead. They fixed up the ship as best they could, and then they gathered 300 Galapagos giant tortoises. Uh, these are the great big massive ones that live for 100 years, right? And they brought them back aboard the ship to use as food. And then they caught another 60 at Floriana Island, which is called Charles Island back then. They brought them aboard as well with all the others. But this wasn't the only thing that happened on Floriana Island, because while also at this island, uh, unf- a rather unfortunate incident took place uh, as well. While some of the crew were off, uh, you know, collecting, I was going to say hunting, but I don't know if there's a lot of hunting involved when you can just walk up to the tortoise and, I don't know, have you and your mate pick it up. I don't know if that really engenders the thrill of the chase for the for the hunter. Anyway, um, while they're off collecting these tortoises, one of the sailors, a bloke whose name was Thomas Chappell, he decided that it would be a very merry jape indeed to light a fire on the island as a prank to his fellow crewmates who were off, you know, collecting these tortoises. You know, as you do, a casual bit of arson, just as a jest, as you know, it's just it's just a prank, bro. Like hilarious, right? But what actually happened was the entire island quickly burnt out of control because it was the middle of the dry season, and the fire raged across the the vegetation and left the island in cinders. The crew hurried back to the ship and set sail, and Captain Pollard was spitting chips. He said he'd punished whoever started the fire most grievously. And even as the ship sailed away, they could see this enormous fire on the horizon, for, for, even into the next day. And the island never fully recovered. Floriana Island never never properly recovered from the fire. Years later, visitors described how it was this ruinous 
ashen wasteland without any vegetation. And even today, Floriana Island uh, is bereft of some of the species that used to live there. The Floriana Island tortoise and the Floriana Island uh, mockingbird uh, are both nearly extinct and they're not found on their original island. It's only on other islands and stuff that you can you can find them today. But again, because of the, the foolish actions of this of this one bloke who set fire to an entire island in the middle of the Pacific. Anyway, I mean, this was far from the only morally reprehensible thing done by these sailors. I mean, they're whalers, uh, which is an occupation that hasn't aged well, even without the extra arson, you know, on top of that. And also what I'm about to tell you next, because I mentioned these tortoises, right? They had 360 of them aboard the Essex. They let many of them just sort of roam freely around the ship. It's, you know, not like they could run away and escape, uh, while many others were stuck down in the hold. But tragically, these sailors were laboring under the misapprehension that Galapagos giant tortoises didn't need to eat or drink that for a year at a time, that they could live for up to a year without food or water. And so they didn't give these poor beasts any provisions of any kind. These tortoises just slowly started starving as soon as they were brought on the ship. It was very unfortunate indeed for them. But the sailors, they're bloody loving it. Apparently Galapagos tortoises are absolutely delicious. Um, and the sailors were looking forward to, you know, cooking them up one by one as they head off to their hunting grounds, going to uh, going to keep their uh, their supplies of fresh meat, uh, you know, well stocked indeed. Anyway, the Essex heads off towards this fabled hunting ground and uh, reach the appointed area in November 1820. They've travelled almost 5,000 kilometres to get there, as I said, and they're now over 3,700 kilometres away from the South American coastline to the east. So a long, long way from any any significant you know land area. Of course, there are, there are again islands dotted around the Pacific, but there's no uh, there's no continental land mass for for many, many thousands of kilometres. And once they arrive, they start to hunt around for, you know, the promised scores of whales that they're supposed to find. But for days, none are forthcoming. And tensions begin to rise on the ship, particularly between Pollard and Chase, who, uh, again, seem to have been at the centre of their disagreement about, you know, heading here in the first place. But then, on the 16th of November, a whale was finally spotted. And the men, they leapt into their whale boats and they get, uh, you know, they, they began to they began to give chase. And as they headed out, you know, their barbed harpoons are prepared, ready to skewer and then kill this mighty leviathan. This whale proves that it is not going to be taken so easily. This whale dived under the water and then surfaced right underneath one of the whale boats. It came back up to the water right underneath one of them and blasted the boat to smithereens. But didn't kill any of the crew. They were all rescued. They were fine. But one of the whale boats was destroyed from the very beginning. And these, I mean... It was a bit of a portent of the future. These whales weren't content to be just skewered and killed. It was a, it was a grim omen of, uh, of what was to come, let me tell you. On the 20th of November, a couple of days later, a pod of sperm whales was sighted. And so the men once again leapt aboard their whaleboat, zoomed off after the whales, leaving just, uh, again, the two men behind to look after the ship. However, one of the boats, led by Owen Chase, the first mate, that bloke I was talking about, he, harpoon, he managed to harpoon a whale, right? but then was stuck by the enormous tail of this beast, and it heavily, heavily damaged the whale boat, very badly indeed. So the sailors, they have to cut the harpoon line, otherwise they're going to be you know, dragged underneath the briny deeps, and uh, they limp back to the Essex in this damaged whale boat for repairs, while the other two whale boats obviously you know, chasing the pod, harpooning other whales, and they're, they're, they're being dragged along behind them after harpooning. And this was called a Nantucket sleigh ride, by the way. What would happen is whale, whalers would throw their harpoons with barbs, which would latch onto the whales that pierce the flesh and, and sort of hook into them, and the whales would then drag the boat behind them as they fled. 
Um, the whalers would wait for the beast to tire out as it, you know, vainly attempted to flee with a boat stuck to it uh, and then kill the whale once it was exhausted and drag it back to the ship. So nasty business, of course, really very nasty. And it only got nastier in the future with the advent of things like grenade-tipped harpoons and processing ships and the like. But that's not what we're, uh, we're here to talk about. Let's head back to Chase now, Owen Chase, the first mate, who, as I say, is, uh, is heading back to the Essex on his damaged whale boat. And once he gets back to the ship, he begins repairing the boat himself with a hammer and nails. And uh, as he was doing this, right, he looked up from his work and he spotted an absolutely enormous sperm whale. It was said to be 26 metres in length, basically as big as the ship itself. And for those of you who, you know, aren't up on your uh, your Cetacean biology here, about 10 metres bigger than the average male sperm whale. Huge it was, right? And it's there just sort of on the surface of the water uh, near the ship. And then, all of a sudden, the whale began to speed towards the ship, you know, full steam ahead, and rammed the Essex at full force after getting, you know, a bit of a run Not a bit of a run-up, I I guess a bit of a swim-up, I suppose I I should say. It rammed into the ship, and the Essex was flung from side to side. It's pitching with the violence of the blow. But this was just the beginning, because the whale then dived back under the ship, before surfacing alongside it. Now, Chase, he grabbed his harpoon. He's ready to attack this whale, but then he stopped because after looking at the position of the whale, he realised that the whale's tail was only inches from the rudder of the ship. Now, if Chase harpooned the whale and it began to thrash about, it might destroy the rudder and then the ship would have no way of returning to shore. Losing the rudder would mean the ship couldn't steer itself and they would essentially be marooned in the middle of the Pacific without any way to guide the ship. So Chase stayed his hand And then the whale began to swim away. But only briefly, because after going about 500 metres away from the ship, it turned once again to face the Essex. And I'll turn now and I'll leave it to first mate Chase himself to describe what happened next. Check this out. I turned around and saw him about 100 rods directly ahead of us, coming down with twice his ordinary speed of around 24 knots, And it appeared with tenfold fury and vengeance in his aspect. The surf flew in all directions about him with the continual violent thrashing of his tail, his head about half out of the water, and in that way he came upon us and again struck the ship. The whale blasted into the ship head first, slamming the bow, the the front of the ship, with full force and more or less caving it in. The Essex immediately began to sink. The bow had been completely shattered to pieces and the the water was pouring in through the ruined remains at the front of the ship. And the eight crew aboard the Essex at the time, I mean, to their credit, they leapt into action. They packed as much as they could into the remaining whaleboat. They grabbed rigging and provisions and the absolutely essential navigation equipment and sea charts from the captain's cabin. And uh, they, they gathered as much as they could and, and piled aboard the whaleboat. The, the Essex whaleboats are all, as I say, between six and nine metres long. So they weren't too cramped, even with all the stuff that they'd quickly brought, uh, brought aboard with them. Luckily, the Essex didn't sink below the waves immediately. The crew went back aboard and, and uh, chopped down the masts in order to make it sink slower. And uh, by the time the other two whaleboats had returned, the wreck was, was still on the water's surface. The whale was nowhere to be seen. It seems to have had its fun and it it, uh, it left in all the confusion while they were pile the, the 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 crew were piling stuff out into the whaleboat 
But the 20 crew members, once they'd all, all returned to the, ru- the, the wreck of the Essex, they hurried to scavenge anything and everything that they could from the ruins of this ship. They, they brought aboard anything they could think of uh, to, the, to the whale boats. They, they brought, as I say, riggings and, and sails and, and bits of wood timber which with, uh, with which they made makeshift masts and attached sails and rigging to, so they could you know, propel these smaller boats. And they also raised the sides of the boats, the gunnels, right, with scavenged planks so as to make them more seaworthy, which would mean that, you know, if there were large waves, they wouldn't wash over the side of the whale boat because they, they realised they were not going to be able to, uh, to sail in the Essex anymore. They realised that if they were going to make it back to land, it had to be done aboard these three whale boats. And so they tried to prepare them as best they could for what was going to be a, a long and very arduous journey here. And in order to, uh, to sustain themselves on this upcoming journey, they scavenged as many supplies as they could, but unfortunately, most of the supplies that they gathered were waterlogged, of course, and they were, they were you know, they were soaked with seawater. Now, I don't know if you've ever eaten anything that has been soaked in seawater, but I can tell you this, it does not improve its edibility, and worst of all, it makes you really, really thirsty. So after taking stock of what they'd managed to scavenge from the wreck, the sailors realise that they are in deep poop here. Things are not looking good. They are 3,700 kilometres from the South American coastline, as I mentioned. And the nearest landmass is the Marquesas Islands to the west, even further away from South America. But they are still 2,000 kilometres away in any case. They didn't have enough food or water to make it safely to either of these places. But there was another complication on top of this. Remember how I mentioned that the sailors were worried about cannibals living on the islands in the Pacific? Much of the crew is very concerned that the Marquesas are inhabited by these cannibals, and it's not only members of the crew, also one of the officers, the first mate Owen Chase, he's very worried about this as well, and he lends weight and and, and strength to this argument that they shouldn't go to the Marquesas Islands. He's convinced that sailing there would be suicide, as they'd just be, you know, captured by the cannibals as soon as they land, and they'd be cooked and eaten. And the crew are so scared of the idea of cannibals living on these islands that instead they vote to sail east. The officers hold a little council and uh, and, and put it to the crew uh, you know, to decide what where they're going to go and what they're going to do. And the decision is made, the, the crew vote instead, to sail the much greater distance back to the South American coastline. But there's another problem. Because at their current latitude, the prevailing wind blows from the east, meaning that they won't be able to sail in that direction, into the wind. In order to sail east, they first need to sail south into the westerlies that blow at the lower latitudes, and that would then, ca- that would then carry them back towards the east. This route involved a 1,600-kilometre journey south and then another 4,800 kilometres east, more than twice the distance to the islands that they you know, thought to be overrun with hungry cannibals. Nonetheless, this is what the crew vote to do. And so after examining all the sea charts that were rescued from the Essex, Captain Pollard agrees to set a a, a course due south. Everything is divided three ways between the boats, all the supplies and and what have you. One is led by Captain Pollard, of course, another one uh, led by first mate Owens, and the, the third boat led by second mate Matthew Joy. And as I say, everything, well, not quite everything was divided up amongst them. All the provisions were, of course, but uh, the sea charts and navigation equipment, they don't have enough of them to split three ways. And so instead, they're just divided up between Pollard and Chase, meaning that Joy, the second mate, Matthew Joy, he has no way to navigate 
and would have to remain within sight of the other boats or he would become hopelessly lost at sea. So, with their charts and equipment and their meagre supplies, each boat also had two Galapagos tortoises aboard it as well, the voyage south began. And even from the very beginning, the sailors rationed their supplies very strictly indeed. But after just two weeks, the supplies were dwindling and the sailors are doing the old Bear grills drink your own piss trick. It's that bad. And on top of that, the whale boats, which are not meant for long voyages, they are not holding up. They're springing leaks. They're requiring constant bailing out and, and impromptu repairs while at sea. So things really are not going very well. The crew are beginning to starve. Their health fades quickly as the time passes, and after a month at sea like this, very many of them are are at death's door. But one month to the very day after the whale attack, on the 20th of December, 1820, the three boats arrive at a tiny island in the middle of the Pacific, Henderson Island, one of the islands in the Pitcairn Island group. Although, due to slight navigational errors, the crew believe that they're actually on Ducey Island, which is 350 kilometres further east than they actually are. Nonetheless, Henderson Island is a welcome respite from the the horror of the open sea. Uh, And on this island, the crew find food and water. There's a small spring that quenches their desperate thirst, and they raced about catching crabs and birds and gathering eggs and plants, and they just stuffed themselves silly on as much food as they could put in their mouths, right? However... Within a week, the men very quickly realise that there just isn't enough on the island to support them. The island's food supply is already dwindling. They can't stay. 20 men is far too many to be provisioned by this island, and they'll all starve if they try to remain there long term. So as a result, they gather what supplies they can, and they get ready to leave, deciding to make for Easter Island now. But not all of them. Three of the crew elect to remain behind on Henderson Island and to try to their, you know try their luck, try their chances there. Three men not named Seth Weeks, William Wright, and Thomas Chapel, the bloke who had started the fire back in the Galapagos. Better not bloody try that nonsense here, mate, or you'll be even in, in even worse trouble than before. But with these three men determined to stay behind, the other seventeen, the remaining seventeen men, get back aboard the whale boats on the twenty seventh of December, and they set sail again towards Easter Island, leaving the three men behind them and, once again, putting themselves at the at the mercy of the open ocean, thousands of kilometres from civilization, and who knows far, how far away from the nearest other humans. Well, I mean, I know, and I'll tell you, it actually wasn't that far at all. Henderson Island is, as I said, it's part of the Pitcairn Islands, and the year is 1820. Long-time listeners will remember episode 46 and 47, and we'll already have figured out just how far away the nearest humans are from these poor, lost, abandoned souls as they leave Henderson Island. About 190 kilometres to the southwest, not very far at all. The mutiny on the bounty took place in 1789, and these mutineers ended up on Pitcairn Island, where their descendants still live to this very day. This island, Pitcairn Island, is just 190 kilometres to the southwest of, of Henderson Island. And, and the tiny settlement that, that had been established there was often visited by passing whalers. And it could have saved the lives of the crew of the Essex in 1820. But as it was, the crew came within 200 kilometres of their salvation without ever actually realising it. And instead, they sailed away to the east, back out onto the open ocean. Three days after this 17, these 17 men set out, They depleted the last of the food that they'd gathered on Henderson Island, leaving just a pittance of the waterlogged supplies from the Essex remaining for them to eat. 
And a few days later, they realised that they were too far south to reach Easter Island, and instead, they headed for a different island, Masatiera, today known as Robinson Crusoe Island, the very same island on which Alexander Selkirk was marooned in episode 137. Get across it. How is this for a stack of crossover episodes here? Unbelievable. However, Masatiera is still almost 3,000 kilometers away from their current position, and by now, it is far too late for most of the crew. And tragically, they begin to perish due to a combination of starvation, thirst, and exposure. The first to die was the second mate, Matthew Joy, who died on the 10th of January in 1821. And the day after Joy died, a squall blew up and Chase's boat was separated from the other two. And uh, a week later after being separated, one of the crew aboard Chase's boat, a bloke named Richard Peterson, he died. He was sewn into his clothes, as was the custom, and given a burial at sea, uh, just as Joy had been given shortly beforehand. But when another sailor, Isaac Cole, died on, on Chase's boat, Chase and the remaining two men aboard the boat, Benjamin Lawrence and the cabin boy Thomas Nickerson, they didn't dispose of his corpse, as they had with the others. Because with no food left for the three remaining survivors, they discussed their options at great length, and then ultimately... And terribly, they decided to resort to cannibalism with Cole's corpse in order to sustain themselves. And the other two boats as well fared little better. They ran out of food altogether on the 21st of January, the day after a sailor named Lawson Thomas had died. And just as on the separated boat, Chase hadn't disposed of Cole's corpse, Captain Pollard kept Thomas's corpse, and with no food left, their men aboard the other two boats also resorted to cannibalism. But even this wasn't enough to save most of them, however. Three more men died within the next week. And on the 28th of January, even these two boats were finally separated. And you'll remember that the boat that had been under Joy's command didn't have any charts or navigational equipment. And after being separated from Pollard's boat, it was never seen again. A boat with three skeletons was found later washed up on Ducey Island. It's, it's suspected to have been the missing whale boat, but it's never been conclusively proven. As for Pollard and his boat, even after resorting to cannibalism, food ran out once again by the 1st of February in 1821. By this stage, only four men remained on the boat, and here's where things get even more horrible than ever before, because there was no food for any of them, and the four of them agreed as a result to draw lots to decide who would be sacrificed in order to save the other three. And it was the 17-year-old Owen Coffin who drew the short straw and accepted his tragic fate very calmly indeed. Captain Pollard even attempted to take Coffin's place as the one sacrificed, but Coffin refused him, saying, No, I like my lot as well as any other. He was shot and killed, and his remains sustained the other three until the 11th of February, when another man, Barzillai Ray, died as well. Coffin and Ray's remains kept Pollard and his final companion, Charles Ramsdell, alive until the 23rd of February when... At long, long last, their ordeal finally came to an end. Their whaleboat was spotted just off the South American coast by another whale ship from Nantucket, and the two men aboard this whaleboat were half dead and almost completely disassociated from reality, but they were dragged aboard this whale ship, delivering them from the horrors that they'd suffered. And so rescued, they were transferred to another ship that was uh, heading to shore to Valparaiso in modern-day Chile. And there, I'm happy to tell you that they were reunited 
with Chase and the other two men from his boat, Lawrence and Nickerson. Chase's boat had been rescued on the 18th of February after almost three months exactly after the whale attack and a full four days since they had run out of food after Cole's death. The five survivors were transferred to a US Navy frigate where the ship's doctor oversaw their recovery and as they recovered, the survivors told the people looking after them about the three men that had been left behind in the Pitcairn Islands and a rescue effort was organised to search for them. A ship called the Surrey that was already intending to cross the Pacific anyway agreed to investigate Juicy Island as that's where the, uh, the, the survivors were thought to be but happily, after finding nothing at Juicy Island, the Surrey also checked out Henderson Island and, if you'll believe it, found Wright, Weeks and Chapel safe and sound, still alive on an island that Chapel had managed to avoid burning to a crisp. They're all taken aboard the Surrey, and all of them, thankfully, arrive safe and sound back on continental dry land in Sydney, Australia, at the conclusion of the Surrey's voyage. Of the 21 men that set sail on the ill-fated voyage from Nantucket in the Essex, only eight survived, and seven of them fell victim to cannibalism to sustain the five that remained aboard the whaleboats. But here is the most terrible thing about it all. If, after the whale attack, the crew had instead sailed east to the Marquesas Islands, they probably all would have survived. In a cruel, cruel twist of fate, it was these sailors' largely baseless fear of cannibalism that drove many of them to become the very thing they feared in the first place, by sailing away from the salvation that those islands offered and into the terrible desperation that they suffered on the open ocean. And in doing everything that they could to avoid it, seven of these poor, wretched souls instead ended up falling victim to the very same fate that they feared so much. Despite the horrific ordeal that these eight men went through, unbelievably, every single one of them went back to sea in the years that followed. Cabin boy Thomas Nickerson joined the Merchant Navy and rose to become a captain, and then in later life wrote an account of the story of the Essex, as indeed did first mate Owen Chase, who spent another 20 years at sea before, unfortunately, losing his grip on reality. He was tortured by what happened on the Essex for the rest of his life. He was plagued by nightmares and headaches for the rest of his days. But his account, and that of Nickerson, is is what offer us such insight into what happened on that terrible voyage. The others too all returned to the sea, including the captain, George Pollard Jr. Captain Pollard, if you'll believe this, went on to captain one of the very same ships that had rescued him from his ordeal in the Pacific, but it was wrecked under his command. And when he joined a merchant vessel after this, it was also wrecked too. Pollard at this point was labelled a Jonah. He was labelled a sailor cursed with ill fortune, and being the superstitious lot that they are, sailors refused to take him on board from then onwards, and he never put to sea again. But nor did he ever forget the ordeal that he had led his men through as the captain of the Essex. The story goes that every year, on the 20th of November, Pollard would lock himself in his room and fast in the memory of his lost crew. And so ends the tale of the final voyage of the whale ship Essex. A tragic tale filled with misfortune and woe.
But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. A decidedly different tone struck with this week's episode. I, I do hope you got something out of it. I, I don't know if enjoyed is the, li- the right word for stories like this, but uh, certainly a grim dark tale like this every now and again certainly mixes up the tone of the show. So hmm, that's that. Anyway, um, thanks for tuning in. Thanks once again to Bart for sending in this topic as a uh, as an idea. And if you want to do the same thing as Bart, please do head to halfhousehistory.net where there's a contact form that you can find there. And if you want to support the show, you can jump on to patreon.com slash halfhousehistory, a range of tiers at which you can sign up. If you want to get across that, please do. Thank you to all the patrons who are supporting this uh, this dumb podcast week in, week out. Very much appreciated. Um, and uh, you can, of course, subscribe to the show, iTunes, Spotify, whatever. There's a link there on the website. Blah, blah, blah. I've done all the, all the normal housekeeping stuff, mate. You've heard it all before. You all know what's going on. Anyway, closing out the show, as usual, with a question posed on Reddit. We talked a lot about whaling and, and whales and that sort of stuff. And here's a whale-related question that comes to us from Basement Dweller 3000 who asks, when a sperm whale finally locates an egg whale, what will happen?